2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
4: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to
0: Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb and this is Joe McCormick, and today on Weird House Cinema, we're going to be talking about the 1967 film The Sorcerers, starring Boris Karloff. Uh, this is a movie that I picked on the, the strength and weirdness of its trailer, and I gotta say that the movie didn't quite live up to my expectations, but I still thought it, was, uh, it, it had some good things going for it. One of the best things going forward, I think, was Boris Karloff, Uh, though his character takes some some very surprising turns. uh, It didn't turn out the way I thought it would.
1: Yeah, this this is a weird one to think about, Um, you know, because it it is clearly uh, I wouldn't say on the lower budget and I wouldn't say it's on the the lower end of the budget spectrum for films we watch per se. Like this is not like a micro budget affair or anything. Uh, but it seems to maybe exist in that realm where they got to be a lot more experimental with sort of the form of the film and how they were dealing with some of the the genre tropes that are employed here. And so it's going to be interesting to discuss those decisions, decisions that in some cases were maybe too daring and didn't pay off completely, but otherwise still give you a lot to think about and, and give you something that you're not going to get in a more sort of, um, I don't know... Uh, finely tuned for audience appreciation film. Um, it has a lot of, you know, groovy 60 to it, though more on kind of like the grimy end of the spectrum. So it reminds me of multiple films we've discussed that are either British or, or set in England, such as um, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, Venom, the, uh, <laughs> the killer snake movie, and so forth.
0: The respect in which it most reminded me of "Let Sleeping Corpses Lie" was the the similarities between the protagonists here, like a young, tall, handsome,
1: eminently rude man. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting to think about like what this film is saying or, or what they were trying to say about like generational differences, because as we'll discuss, it is kind of like an oldies versus youngins picture you know Uh it's it's geezers versus youngins but um whose side is the picture taking you know uh it's it's hard to say and as we'll discuss like the director the director himself was very young he was in his 20s Mm -hmm. uh and yet he doesn't seem to be fully siding with youth culture here either
0: huh well if i were to assess i i would say that the old people definitely turn out to be well i mean i guess it's divided the main villain of the movie is an old person
1: yes but the old person in question does have their reasons, yeah. um, and, and, it is, and it is a way the, the, the most developed character in the whole picture.
0: Now, the trailer really sells this movie as a, a, as a deep psychedelic experience that has a lot of uh, either magical or science fiction happenings in it. I, I would say actually there is just one main science fiction element, and other than that, it's a very down-to-earth movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, now the, the speculative element is nice and vague and and and, and out of control because it's kind of it, it's I mean, essentially, this is a mind control panic film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead of communists, it's old people. That's my, my elevator pitch uh-huh. uh, for the film. Uh, but it's not just mind control. It's also there's like psychic control and the psychic sharing of sensations. So it's. It's almost uh, like uh, an element of fantasy to it. Like, that's how far out and, uh, you know, and, and unhindered this uh, the speculative element is in the film. Yeah,
0: they never go out of their way to be too technical about uh, explaining how the science fiction element
1: works. So it does kind of feel more like magic. Yeah. And I guess that's why they went with the title, The Sorcerers, though to, to be clear, there are no actual sorcerers in this film, much like there is no sorcerer in the 1977 movie Sorcerer. It just has, that's of course the, the remake of Wages of Fear that just stars a truck named Sorcerer. <laughs> but also features one of the greatest Tangerine Dream scores of all time. For symmetry, I think they should make a movie about a wizard that's called Truck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Truck the Wizard, yeah. All right, well, you, you talked up this trailer. Let's go ahead and listen to the trailer. You're not going to get those psychedelic visuals, but I think you'll get a taste of what they were trying to sell here.
3: Intoxication with no hangover. Ecstasy with no consequence. let's see what you can come up with. From now on, we are going to control your mind. From time to time, we'll put thoughts into your head and you will obey those thoughts. I never dreamed this could happen, even at this distance. To get inside another's mind so completely to feel transmissions from his very nervy. <laughs> your mind and there I hope here is when I can't remember anything at all nothing boy you're coming on strong now Turn. In-
1: Sounds pretty compelling, huh? Huh? Now, if you want to watch this movie for yourself, uh, I need to point out this one doesn't. I don't think this one has received a Blu-ray release, or at least I couldn't find one. Uh, It's widely available on DVD and as a digital SD rental or purchase. However, uh, I watched a a digital rental of it on Prime, and it's certainly not restored in any fashion. It's it's grimy, but also not too grimy. It's um, it feels like a like a like a media artifact, you know, like I, I kind of like watching a film like this occasionally where everything's just a little bit dirty.
0: Yeah, it's kind of stuck on
1: like the lower end of the DVD spectrum. Yeah, but it's not so bad uh, like uh, uh, like some films we've looked at where you're struggling to figure out who's who uh, or you're not picking right. up certain details and scenes and so forth. No, for me, this
0: movie did not have a who's who problem, though it did have a problem that one of, like, the main three young characters, I didn't know his name until the end of the film. (laughs) I'm talking about Alan here, the red haired mechanic who uh, (laughs) uh, at some point they they talk about him moving coal carts up and down the mines. And I'm like, oh, okay, so he's a miner. But then they show him at work later and he's repairing cars. So I don't know what the deal (laughs) with him was supposed to be. Uh, But he's like the nice friend of our of our rude protagonist.
1: Yeah, I guess I didn't realize he was going to be essential. So I didn't even maybe I wasn't even trying to learn his name because I didn't feel like he was going to be along for the whole ride. And then he was.
0: Also, literally half his scenes are in a club where a band is playing so loud you can't hear anything anybody's saying. That's true.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of scenes in the club. But a club that also feels kind of grimy, like it's a little bit psychedelic, but you can also see the ceilings a little bit too clearly, uh-huh. you know, so it in, in in a way that's perfect. Like it's... It, it's it has a sort of grittiness to it. And I and it's uh, hard to say how much of that is like in the, in the intentional vision of the picture and how much is just, you know, like lower budget. And it's you know obviously not quite a Mario Bava affair when it comes to the way things are are lit and realized. What was the other movie we watched that had a scene with a nightclub with
0: that felt claustrophobic and had low ceilings? Was Ooh. it Piranha Mondier? Did that have a, a scene in a in a kind of like yeah. uh, closed feeling club?
1: Yeah, it did have a kind of like closed, like still daylight outside club. Um, Yeah. I also feel like the club in Scream and Scream Again also had this kind of a vibe. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the people involved in this film. There are several interesting and notable names here. So the writer, one of the writers and the director of the picture is Michael Reeves, who lived 1943 through 1969, tragically short-lived director. He only directed three full-length films, She-Beast in 66, The Sorcerers in 67, and Witchfinder General in 68. Uh, He he died of an accidental drug overdose, apparently. Mm. She-Beast starred English actor and Italian horror movie queen Barbara Steele. I've not seen it, but the plot sounds great. Quote, a newlywed English tourist and an eccentric Transylvanian count must work together when the former's beautiful wife is made the bodily host of a horrific witch. Okay, that's going on the list. Yeah, I need a spreadsheet to know what is going on in that summary.
0: Wait, working together with a Transylvanian count? So the Transylvanian count is like the ally of the hero?
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure whose beautiful wife this is. Is this the beautiful wife of the The newlywed English tourist, or is it the count? I don't know. I need to diagram this sentence. It says the former's
0: beautiful wife. The former would refer to the English tourist because that comes before the eccentric Transylvanian
1: count. Okay, but is she on—I I just have so many questions. Is she on this trip? Are they in Transylvania? I don't yeah. know. Oh, boy. Anyway, the, the other film, 1968's Witchfinder General, is, of course, his best-regarded and most famous work, starring Vincent Price as a, like a fictionalized version of the historic 17th century witch hunter Matthew Hopkins.
0: I feel like I can think of multiple metal bands that have songs about the, the Witchfinder General, which I've never yes. seen, so I guess I must—
1: yeah, I haven't seen it either. But of course, you know, it's, it's certainly on the list because, uh, you know, Vincent Price, uh, Vincent Price as a witch hunter, inspiring uh, doom metal bands. And uh, yeah, and also it's, it's, uh, it's pretty well regarded. I think Vincent Price is, uh, went on record at different times saying he really liked this role. Okay, well, it's possible we might have to become Michael Reeves
0: completists and do these other two movies, and, and perhaps the one we're looking at today will be the least of the three.
1: Who knows? Yeah, maybe so. But it's still a lot of interesting connections here. Um, so other writers, Tom Baker, not to be confused with the actor, um, worked on this, also worked on Witchfinder General. John Burke, who lived 1922 through 2011, writer for various TV shows, including The Equalizer and The Frighteners, also worked on the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But getting into the cast, this is where it gets, uh, gets more interesting. Uh, we have, of course, right at the top, on the poster, uh, this film stars Boris Karloff. He was, of course, a British actor, born William Henry Pratt, uh, who will be forever remembered for his role as the monster in James Whale's 1932 adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, of course, he was in uh, Bride of Frankenstein as well. Other key horror films include 32's The Mummy, uh, 34's The Black Cat, 1940s Black Friday, and so much more. Uh, He was famously the non-singing voice of The Grinch in the 1966 animated uh, version from Chuck Jones. He worked a lot, and even though he is best remembered for his horror roles today, he acted in a wide variety of pictures. Uh, He worked stage and screen as well as television. And uh, in his later years, he also served as a horror host on shows like Thriller and Out of This World.
0: I really enjoy late career Boris Karloff. Of course I love uh, Frankenstein and especially Bride of Frankenstein, but that I think uh, Bride of Frankenstein's sort of the for me the the pinnacle of the the universal horror films. But in his later roles he has some of that older seasoned actor energy that that I always really enjoy you know like late career christopher lee and uh, all these like i don't know there, there's just something i think especially when a lot of these horror actors get into their later years they bring a kind of uh crypt like magic along with them and Karloff definitely has that in his 60s film so i loved him in black sabbath where he plays the patriarch of this uh uh, of this Carpathian mountain dwelling family in the, in the segment in that movie called the Verdulak, He's just, mm-hmm. he, Oh, he's so good in that. And when they you know, they got, uh, Bava's got all the purple lights on him and he's wearing that wild, uh, fur lined hood and has the facial hair. I thought he was great in this movie as well. And I even love him in some of the seedier stuff like in, um, who's it who directed targets? Was that Peter Bogdanovich?
1: Yes, that was a 1968 film from Peter Bogdanovich uh, that I haven't seen in a while. I remember liking it when I saw it, like on AMC back in the day. And I'm, I'm a, I don't know if I would want to watch it today because yeah. it, it it is a pretty serious film that concerns a a mass shooting incident. But um, but it but a very interesting late career uh, Karloff picture for sure, and one in which he's not playing a a wizard or a vampire or anything. Like he's playing essentially a fictionalized version of himself. Yeah. I think he plays
0: an actor who was famous for doing horror films. Yeah. And then as this actor, he ends up confronting a a mass shooter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's Karloff, who plays Professor Marcus Montserrat. But then we have uh, this character's wife, Estelle Montserrat, played by Catherine Lacey, who lived 1904 through 1979. English actor with credits going back to 1938, she, uh, in which she, she, that was when she played a nun in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. Other credits include 49's Whiskey Galore, 67's The Mummy's Shroud, and 1970's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which I haven't seen. It sounds like a weird sell. It's like we've all seen the, the crimes and the investigations, but what about the private life? Let's yeah. get into the cool. private life of Sherlock Holmes. What does he do on Sunday morning? I don't know. I did notice that Christopher Lee plays Mycroft Holmes in that. So I don't know. Maybe it's interesting.
0: Well, I said I enjoyed Boris Karloff's performance and I certainly did. But I was quite surprised to find I thought he was a bit upstaged by Catherine Mm -hmm. Lacey playing his wife in this movie. Uh, I think she's great and her character goes in a very surprising direction.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the film does go in a surprising direction. One that certainly elevates her performance. And Karloff is still great. But um, as we'll discuss, well, I don't want to give any spoilers. We'll, we'll get into it. Uh, but uh, I, the, the, the choices here, I think, make sense for the for the plot. All right. So those are our old people. Yes. Let's get into some of the young The The whippersnappers. Yes, we have Elizabeth Ursi playing Nicole. Uh, Born 1944, German-born French actress who debuted in the 1962 American Greek drama Phaedra in 62, co-starring Anthony Perkins. She didn't work terribly long, however, and left acting by 68. Um, Was a notable celebrity for several years, though, and uh, apparently dated Michael Caine, which I only mention because there are so many Getty images of her and Michael Caine like hanging out and, I don't know, doing interviews and stuff. So I included one for you to look at here, Jeff.
0: (laughs) The posture in this photo is bizarre. It's of Michael Caine sitting in uh, in a a way I can only describe as diagonally in a chair (laughs) in the foreground, and then she is standing behind the chair behind him, like leaning on the back of it.
1: Yeah, and it's like in some strange mod living room. It's like this weird snapshot of, uh, I guess, like British hip culture of the late 60s. I can see next to them one of those uh,
0: televisions that had like wooden legs. Oh yeah, isn't it gorgeous? Yeah. Why do they make TVs like that today? Okay, so you know high definition TV, maybe a maybe a flat screen, I guess, if you must, but it should have like a wooden box around
1: it and wooden legs. <laughs> yeah, it needs to take up uh, some some serious real estate in the living room. All right. Uh, next on the cast here is um, the character Mike Roscoe, played by Ian Ogilvy. Born 1943, British actor who has been active since 1958, still active today. Prior to this film, he was in She-Beast, which uh, and and he also appeared in Witchfinder General. Uh, He worked a lot over the eight decades he's been active. He's roughly the same age now as Karloff was in this film. Mm. Um, Just to hit a few highlights, his later credits include 1970s, uh, Wuthering Heights, uh, the 1974 Amicus Horror Anthology, From Beyond the Grave, 74 is The Gathering Storm, 76 is I, Claudius, 1992's Death Becomes Her, and then later on, Puppet Master 5. Oh, his, his performance in Puppet Master 5. It's a tour de force. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. But still, I, Claudius, nothing to sneeze at there.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, strangely, I, you would think this will make more sense when we describe what happens in the plot. I guess what I would say is you would have expected this movie to demand more of him, but it kind of doesn't. He is allowed to sort of sleepwalk through a lot of it. So no criticism of of uh, Ian Ogilvy as an actor here, but his his character is actually very subdued, uh, mm-hmm. surprisingly subdued, given what happens to him. He's mostly just kind of like looks with a with a cool, mostly emotionless expression at things as they happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting role because he is—he's kind of the villain of the of the picture, as we'll learn. You know, I mean, you may have certain expectations about how it's going to play out for this character, and they don't really match up with what we see. All right, uh, this character has a friend in the picture uh, named Alan. This is the one you, you weren't sure we were talking about. We weren't sure who he was for so long. Yeah, um, Alan was played by Victor Henry, who lived 1943 through 1985. Another talent in this film whose career was cut way too short. He'd only started acting for TV in 64 and for film in 67. He played the lead in 1969's All Meat in Black Stockings, a a dramedy. But sadly, he was severely injured in the early 70s in an auto accident. Uh, He was a pedestrian in this accident and spent the last 17 years of his life in a coma. So uh, really, really sad to, 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 to to uh, to read that and also especially when you see in this picture like you see that like he's a talented young actor and as with the director like you can't help but imagine like what these individuals would have gone on to do had they had another decade or two or more you know uh, in the industry
0: yeah uh the way this character is written is interesting because our main character in a way mike is as we said very Cool and unemotional and just kind of rude. Uh, and his friend Alan here is the exact opposite. He's very friendly and obliging and talkative.
1: Yeah.
2: The
5: There's joy in every journey.
1: All right, a much smaller role in this, but one that's notable is we have this character named Audrey, Audrey Woods, who shows up, and she is played by Susan George, born 1950. English actor who is was, um, pretty, again, pretty early in her career at this point, but became much more well-known in the early 70s, appearing in 71 Straw Dogs, uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry in 74, Mandingo in 75. Uh, She also appeared in a number of international B-movies of note, including Rene Cardona Jr.'s uh, Tintoria Killer Shark, and 1981's Enter the Ninja, starring Franco Nero and Shokosugi. Uh, That's one that I vaguely remember watching when I was way too young, and I was not prepared for the blood in it uh, at the time. I was going to say, what have we
0: seen that she was in? She, it, uh, Susan George, I know has come up on the show before.
1: Yeah. She was one of the kidnappers in venom. The, uh, the 1981 snake movie where she, her characters teaming up with Klaus Kinski's character. And, um, Oliver oh, Reed Oliver Reed's character yes yes a trio of kidnappers who then get locked in a house with a black mamba and she has a fantastic death scene where she of course like everyone gets bit by the black mamba and proceeds to have like uh, a uh, a death scene like th- that feels like an audition for the exorcist uh huh is she the one who leaps out of a window after she gets bitten Oh, she may. Yeah, I I remember it being very impressive. Like, it's like, wow, she really is a tour de force. But yeah, she, she's still active today as well, I believe. Uh, she was also in All Need and Black Stockings. And mm. um, and uh, she doesn't have as much to do in this, but again, went on to great things. All right, just two more notes here. These are going to be shorter, but uh, the art director on this was Tony Curtis, who lived 37 through 2021. 20, again, not to be confused with the actor. He's come up in the show before because he was the production designer on Venom, and um, he also worked on various amicus horror movies, and he was art director on Kroll. Obviously, oh. this film did not have the same budget or or sweeping fantastic vision as Kroll, but it's a neat connection nonetheless.
0: You can tell he really wanted to work a glaive in there, like have <laughs> Boris Karloff pull out a glaive and be like, this is how I will control your mind,
1: but th- it didn't quite happen. That would have been neat if there was some sort of artifact there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the musical scores by Paul Ferris, who lived 1941 through 1995, English composer who worked with Reeves on several films, including Witchfinder General. Uh, he has an also has an acting cameo in Witchfinder General. And apparently, due to copyright issues, for a long time, when you watch Witchfinder General, you'd get a synth score instead that was put in place of his original score. I again, I haven't seen that movie. I have, so obviously I haven't seen it with either score. Uh, but I can't help but wonder, anytime I, I encounter an alternate score scenario, especially if one is called out for being a synth score, um, it gives me pause, makes me wonder which which path I would choose. Mm, well, we all know your proclivities. Yeah. Though, I mean, there are bad synth scores out there as well, so <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'll have to check it out at some point. The music for this film, though... Um, I don't know. It's, it's really weirdly <laughs> kooky at times, Yeah. especially with the old people. It's like, are we supposed to find them humorous now because they're also very dangerous individuals?
0: Yeah, we're seeing Boris Karloff wander down the sidewalk and it's just playing lunatic circus music. I, I don't know what to make of that.
1: Yeah, it's an odd choice, but there are a lot of odd choices in this film. Um, oh, one, one extra fun fact. Raquel Welch has an assistant producer credit on this, and apparently did some uncredited wardrobe supervision on the film. Her husband at the time, Patrick Curtis, was one of the producers. Oh, okay. I just had to look this up to make sure. That's interesting because she
0: was in uh, Fantastic Voyage, which came out in 66. So that was actually released before this movie, and she was acting in that, but but still did wardrobe here.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean... It- I don't know m- any details on it. It might have been a situation where, especially since it's uncredited, she might have just been on set with mm. um, with her husband at the time. And she might have given them some tips about how certain characters should dress. I'm not sure.
0: Oh, she was also in her Caveman movie in 1966, One Million Years B.C. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: So she was already uh, really hot stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 she, was just, she was just hanging out on this one, I think. I see. All right, shall we get into the plot of The Sorcerers? All righty. So we begin with
0: eerie, warbling music, and we see an old man hobbling slowly down the sidewalk in a city somewhere in England. I think this is London. The old man is dressed nicely with a dark overcoat, blue scarf, and a black hat. And he walks with the help of a cane, and he has a neatly trimmed white goatee. And when we see his face, hey, that
1: is Boris Karloff. And he he just looks to be in a chronic, sour mood here. I was really expecting him to start uh, talking about future shock in this opening, you know, start forcing Wells and be like, in the course of my travels, which have taken me around the world, there is a California champagne. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But as we'll find out, he is not this is a character who is not shocked by the future. He's here to unleash the shock if folks will just let him. That's right. But but I do know what you're saying about the future shock thing, because
0: it feels like he's wandering Wandering the sidewalk, kind of sadly, and something about the shot feels squalid. I don't know if it's quite supposed to seem that way, uh, or if it's just something incidental about like the gray, dismal color palette, and there's like litter all over the ground. Mm -hmm. And a couple walks past Boris Karloff. They've got their arms around each other, and they're leaning in to kiss each other while they go past him. And for some reason, the the implication I received from that is like young people in
1: love. Ick. I mean, it makes sense for the, the the theme of the movie. It is a like generational conflict here. Yeah. So Karloff wanders up to the
0: notice board outside a tobacconist shop and he looks at the postings. He frowns. He goes inside and then he raps on the counter with his cane and says to the shop owner, where is my advertisement, young man? And the guy's like, what's it for? Karloff is clearly exhausted by the ceaseless, humiliating inanities of this dunce-like world. And he says, for my professional services. And the tobacconist gets it now. He says, oh, so you are the famous Professor Montserrat. Well, the tobacconist explains, uh, we learned that the shop took the notice down for two reasons. First of all, uh, uh Karloff owed them five bob to keep it up and he hadn't paid. But then the the guy also says it didn't seem to interest the public like some of the other notices. And I was just thinking, why would they care about that?
1: Yeah, this was the whole and like, I was instantly intrigued by this world where you pay to have your little flyer put up. Like, I mean, nowadays, you just put it up in the coffee shop. Right. And yeah, come and like put it up again if something gets pasted over it. Right. I guess so. And when when we see the guy go to replace it, he he puts it back
0: over somebody else's notice. So <laughs> <laughs> I haven't advertised the podcast like this in a while.
1: Uh, you know, making the rounds,
0: paying five bob to put up a index card sized uh, ad on like a outside of a shop door. I don't know. It, it it's surprising that that would work at all. But Montserrat, you know, he protests when he's told this. He says, "How can I keep my practice alive without advertising?" But, like, dude, you didn't pay your fee. What do you expect? <laughs> anyway, Monserrat gives in. He pays the money. And the guy puts the ad back up outside the shop door. And we close in on the card so we can see what the deal is. It says, Dr. Marcus Monserrat, practitioner of medical hypnosis, stammering, self-consciousness, anxiety, painlessly cured.
1: All right. Sounds, sounds reasonable. Right.
0: And so he's, you know, he's helping people deal with future shock, I guess. Karloff's character is an alternative psychiatrist who offers hypnosis-based therapies to repair the wonky brains of 20th century urbanites in England. And Marcus comes home to his apartment after this and meets his wife, Estelle. This is played by Catherine Lacey, and she is making lunch. And according to our tradition of pausing to look at table settings and food that were never meant to be scrutinized in high definition, I'll say this is one of the more organic-looking meals we have observed in a movie lately, though it is amusingly English. uh, It appears to be roast beef with brown gravy, a mound of green peas, and then a stiff, roughly baseball-shaped agglutination of mashed potatoes. Mm Mm-hmm. So Marcus asks uh, Estelle if any patients have come inquiring, and Estelle says, only a man with a twitch in his cheek. Uh, She says that he said he'd be back later, and then Marcus mutters to himself with an amused tone, I wonder if he will. And I, I thought this was nice. Karloff plays his character with a pleasant subtlety that varies depending on his environment. So he's obviously... Struggling to keep his practice afloat. And this comes through as pure irritation when he's in the presence of the outside world, like talking to the tobacconist. But it is it it, it has a different emotional inflection. He's more reflective and resigned when he's at home with Estelle. It seems to me like Marcus Montserrat is kind of a homebody and he loves spending time
1: with his wife. Yeah, yeah, it's sweet. in 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 retrospect, kind of a weird way to start off the the movie, <laughs> yes, yeah. because everything seems uh, maybe a a little uh, maybe on the sad end of of things, but um, you know, nothing monstrous so far, right? However, just before they begin their lunch,
0: Marcus steps away from the table and heads toward a closed door in the corner. He hesitates for a moment, then he opens the door to look inside the room. And we don't see what he's looking at, only him standing in the doorway looking inside. We see the glare of pure white walls, some ominous music swells. What's he looking
1: at in the room? Yeah, now we have we do have a hint of the monstrous here, because whatever's in that room, it, it's not good. We can just tell. Anyway, time for
0: beef, so he goes to have his beef and gravy, and uh, Marcus and Estelle sit down at the table together, and Estelle, she, oh, she's excited about something. She's quivering with anticipation, and she says, how soon will it be ready? Marcus says, soon, tomorrow perhaps, and she is thrilled at this idea, whatever it is. She asks, and then we can test it? He says, and then we can test it. What is it? Well, we've got to wait to find out. Because from this quiet, intimate scene with an old married couple in their home, we cut straight to the exact opposite, an ear-splitting dance number at a rock and roll club. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in a room that is packed with young people boogieing to the hep sounds of an electric psychedelic rock band. And I thought the sound mixing in this scene is awful. You cannot make out a single word of the lyrics in the song. It also sounded to me like the band is playing inside a giant steel barrel and is running every instrument, including the drums, through a tape flanger or something like that. So it's just like, I don't know, it's the well to hell of garage psych bands.
1: Yeah. And again, there's something kind of grimy to the way everything is shot. So you can... You look at this place and you can just imagine how sticky the floors are from spilt drinks, you know?
0: Yes. Ugh. Gross. Yeah, peeling your feet up every dance step, mm-hmm. uh, and so the credits roll while all this is going on, and the bad sound continues as this develops into an actual scene with dialogue. Because we next zoom in on a table with three characters. These will be our main young characters for the film. There is Mike, who is played by Ian Ogilvy. There's Nicole, played by Elizabeth Ursi, and then the third. Again, this is the guy whose name I didn't know for most of the movie. This is Alan, played by Victor Henry. And Alan is kind of dressed weirdly for the venue. Everybody else is in these hip 60s clothes, like, you know, dark turtlenecks and stuff and, uh, and miniskirts and all that. But Alan is wearing a tweed blazer. And I, I didn't know quite how to read that. Uh, maybe if we had the, the correct uh, cultural contextual understanding, we would know, like, oh, that means he is like X. But I didn't know exactly what it meant. Does it mean he's
1: kind of a nerd or he's, like, not with it? I don't know. Yeah. Like, is he just, uh, maybe he's a little bit square. He's not a sort of, like it's, I guess everybody else is kind of a mod, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but a lower budget mod. Like, you know, there's only, there's only so much they could do here. And as I said, it's kind of hard to hear what they're saying, but the
0: gist of their conversation seems to be that uh, Mike is Nicole's boyfriend. Nicole wants Mike to come dance with her, but he refuses Alan scolds Mike for being a wet blanket and, and, and not dancing. Mike is like, hey, I spend five nights a week in this den of iniquity just to keep Nicole happy. And then Alan goes to dance with Nicole instead. And so we see them like weave through all these people making out and stuff, go to the dance floor and then start doing the Watusi. And then we see Mike alone at the table with his drinks, and, you know, I get the feeling that Mike sort of, he kind of likes himself a little bit. Uh, You know, he's
1: got this, like, haughty, prideful posture. Yeah, and he's, he's just kind of like, I'm above all this fun. Oh, my goodness. I'm so done with all this fun. So all three of them eventually leave the club
0: to go out wandering, but at some point, Mike and Alan find themselves standing outside of some building they're waiting for nicole to come out of the bathroom i think alan jokes that she's doing her toenails or something and then micah gets impatient and he tells alan uh first of all i am bored uh second i spend half of my life waiting on nicole third uh i am not going to wait anymore i need you to take her out to dinner while i go and get my kicks And Alan's like, but she's your girlfriend. And Mike says, nope, I am. I'm outsourcing duties to you tonight. You take her to dinner. My mind needs weird, freaky new experiences.
1: <laughs>
0: so what's the weird, freaky new experience he's going to seek out? Well, it's I thought it was pretty funny because the next thing we see Mike do is wander into a chip shop and say, give us a wimpy,
1: please. Uh, oh, now what is a wimpy? Is this a burger? It's a hamburger. Yeah. OK, like that, like uh, this is a Popeye thing, right? Or is is, is this a Popeye reference or is the the Popeye thing a burger reference?
0: Oh, uh, I could be wrong, but I think a,
1: a wimpy is just a one word for a burger in, in okay. British English. Yeah. Okay. Well, at any rate, yeah, maybe that's his whole thing. It's like, I just need junk food. I just need some sloppy burgers here. Yeah. Um, let uh, let Alan uh, and Nicole go and have a nice dinner somewhere.
0: They'll go out to a French restaurant and I'm going to get my, my sloppy burgers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, so we see him, you know, he's sitting down waiting for his burger, I guess. Meanwhile, at the Montserrat home, Marcus comes out of the room with white walls. He walks into the living room where Estelle is waiting anxiously with no company but a ticking cuckoo clock. And Marcus says he's finished his preparations. It's ready. And Estelle is so relieved. She wants to try it out as soon as possible. Whatever it is, they decide they are not going to wait until the morning. They will try it out tonight. But, Estelle says, who can we use? They decide whoever it is, it must be a stranger, somebody they've never met before, who need never know what has happened to him. And then Karloff says, but it must be someone whose mind is pliable, someone who is basically willing. Estelle says, a drunk! (laughs) And Marcus poo-poo is this. He says, no, a mind confused by alcohol would not work.
1: Yeah, I, this was amusing because, yeah, they're, they're like, OK, no no booze-addle brains for this project, but a pill-addle brain, that's exactly what we're looking for.
0: Yeah, I thought that was funny, too. So they say, um, they decide, they, this is a quote I wrote down, they say, we need a boy who is bored, out looking for something. All these
1: children out
0: on the streets at night, taking pills to keep themselves awake. It's perfect.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> In a way, I guess it does, it does really work with what is to come because a lot of this is about like this, this, this need for sensation and, um, and it's, it's kind of neat too. Like there's so, uh, Estelle especially is just so, um. Uh, eager to try this thing out that they're going to do. And her eagerness, is you could compare it to the eagerness of one who has uh, some sort of drug in their possession and desperately wants to go ahead and have that experience of said drug. Mm -hmm. So they decide they're going to find a
0: healthy young man who is looking for new experiences of pleasure, who can be enticed into anything by Montserrat if he poses as a locksmith to the doors of perception. Mm Mm-hmm. So we see Boris Karloff. He goes out wandering. He wanders the city at night. This is one of the parts where they were just playing that circus music of madness while he while he mm-hmm. prowls the sidewalk. He's looking for a boy on pills. And eventually Montserrat wanders into the chip shop where Mike is having his wimpy. And Karloff, he walks up to, to Mike's table. He says, You're looking very <laughs> bored, young man. <laughs> It's a great pickup line. It it is. And Mike's like, what? And he says, you know, I've been following you all this evening. You you uh you, you seem to be bored by life. I could offer you something. Uh first Karloff offers to buy Mike a coffee, but then Mike says, No thanks. I don't drink. And I was like, What? But the, I think maybe we that's to mean Mike understands Karloff is offering him a coffee in order to quote sober him up." Uh, side note, that oh, doesn't that work. Yeah, yeah,, that doesn't work. Take drinking coffee does not sober you up um, th- That's an old you know myth myth that you drink some coffee and like, ah, okay, your you're, you're drunkenness goes away,
1: yeah, you're ultimately just going to compound things by drinking caffeine, uh you know probably late at night, yeah in this scenario. Ah, But Karloff smiles, and I think
0: that means like, oh, he doesn't drink. Remember, he didn't want an alcohol-confused brain. So uh, uh, Mike says, what is it you do want? Karloff says, I could offer you an unusual evening, some extraordinary experiences. And Mike says, what are you selling, blue movies? (laughs) (laughs) Karloff says, nothing as dull as that. Then Mike says, cheap hash, not worth the trouble, mate. Karloff says, this would be worth the trouble. And then Mike just sighs and
1: says, okay, lead me to it. <laughs> what? Let's follow the sketchy old man <laughs> to, uh, to his promise of uh, sensations beyond hash and pornography.
0: I mean, he did accurately assess that Mike was bored. So maybe he's impressed by that. He's like, oh, this man is perceptive.
1: <laughs> but clearly, this is who they've been, been waiting for. Very in a way, it seems like very little work was required to bring this guy uh, into the trap. And then, right after
0: Mike says, "Okay, lead me to it," there's a whip zoom on a hamburger patty, a wimpy sizzling on the grill. Nice. Are we supposed to form a an association there? Is Mike like the sizzling hamburger?
1: Mm, I mean, sometimes you just got to close out the <laughs> close out the sequence with something, yeah. right?
5: There's joy in every journey. So, back
0: at the Montserrat apartment, uh, Karloff brings Mike home. He introduces him to Estelle. And again, hilarious mike is so baseline rude to both of them he's not quite on the varla level of rude for no reason but it's close he mm-hmm. the old man's like i'm professor montserrat maybe you've heard of me and mike's like no i don't think so
1: <laughs> yeah this is very much a scene where like i guess we're supposed to to be rooting for the the oldies who are up to no good here because look at youth culture it's so rude
0: they try to welcome him with some pleasantries and get him settled in, but he wants to get right to business. He says, OK, old man, you promised me some weird multicolored marvels. Where are they? Let's, let's get right to it. He, he yeah, doesn't it, even know what this is.
1: Right. And he doesn't seem especially on guard. He's just in a hurry to get to it. But, I mean, this is this is, this is so sus, as the the kids today would say.
0: Yes. And so they lead him inside the room with white walls. It's the, the sussest room in this apartment. <laughs> and uh, finally, what's inside is revealed. It is full of equipment. It's full of meters and gauges. And then in the middle of the room, there is what looks like an electric chair. It is a
1: wooden seat with a headset uh, wired to electrodes. And Mike, I guess, is like, all right, this seems fine. <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. they explain that uh, Marcus Montserrat is a hypnotist, and with the aid of this machine, they can offer him an experience that is totally new. Marcus says, dazzling, indescribable experiences, complete abandonment with no thought of remorse. Estelle says, intoxication with no hangover, ecstasy with no consequence. So they're really driving this theme home. They're offering him pleasure with no consequences. All he's got to do is get in the chair and let the hooks do the work. (laughs) And he's like, "Uh, "Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. He gets in the chair and he the only real hesitation seems to be impatience. He gets in the chair. He's like, get on with it. Come on. (laughs) He's not happening fast enough. Yeah. He puts the electrodes on his head and then he's like idly twirling the wires with his fingers while he's waiting. So he's Mm -hmm. he's bored still. And then Marcus and Estelle, they go to their equipment, they switch some dials, uh, and they initiate the procedure. There's a heartbeat thumping on the soundtrack. And so what happens when they do this procedure to him?
1: Well, the the details of what is supposed to actually be happening here um, are sketchy. Something involving hypnosis and ultimately psychic mind control and and shared sensations between human brains over uh, varying distances. I don't know what the limits (laughs) are to like how far away individuals could be from one another. But in terms of what we are presented with on the screen, uh, it actually is a pretty nice uh, sequence that they give us here. Uh, So for effects, they project a liquid light show onto uh, onto his face a um, liquid light show like that popularized by the Joshua Light Show of American artist Joshua White, born 1942. Um, I think every a lot of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about. This has become a visual staple of the 1960s. Um, it pops up in such films as 1969's Midnight Cowboy. Joshua White has a special effects lighting credit on that film. Uh, he was not involved in this production. Uh, but he eventually got into directing and uh, directed episodes of such shows as the original Max Talking Headroom show and Seinfeld.
0: What the Max the Max Talking Headroom show was that different than Max Headroom?
1: Yeah, I'm not, I don't recall where this falls into the, um, uh, in, into the, the timeline of Max Headroom things. But this was a, a 1987 series or special. Mm titled The Original Max Talking Headroom Show, and it looks like it had various celebrity guests on it, so this might have been kind of like a MTV-type thing. I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: I see. So Max Headroom is like a dystopian sci-fi narrative show, and then they, like, extracted the character Max Headroom
1: into other stuff. Yeah, this one looks like it had various uh, guest stars on it, like celebrity guest stars and so forth of the day. But anyway, that's that's beside the, the the point because yeah, essentially we're getting um, we're, we're getting a liquid light show on Mike's face, and it is I think the most visually interesting sequence in the entire picture, and one that is utilized in the trailer.
0: Right. So yeah, they're they're projecting this light show onto Mike's face. They're sort of using his face as the projector screen. In some shots, his head is seemingly isolated from his body. Maybe it's, you know, his body's under a black cloak or something like his head's floating in space. Uh, and so this goes on for a while and he's obviously, you know, he's out of his mind. And then they finish doing the procedure to him and they start giving him orders. The Montserrat say, get up out of your chair, go into the next room close the door and he does everything they say. So, Oh boy, they discover it worked. What was it? They can now control Mike from a distance. They see what he sees. They feel what he feels. They control his actions with a word or even a thought. So they, they test it out. They have him go to the refrigerator, open it, select an egg and then crush it in his hand. And we see like the yolk leak out all over his palm and they feel it in their hands and so forth. Hmm. So they say from now on, we are going to control your mind from time to time. We will put thoughts into your head and you will obey those thoughts. You will have no memory of us. And he's just like, all right. And
1: then he leaves, <laughs> he
0: leaves the apartment.
1: All right. And so, I mean, that's your setup. This is clearly this is, um, is going to go terrible places. But the initial setup is now uh, the, the elderly couple has control of a young body. Yeah, yeah. So they send Mike. Well, he goes back to the club
0: first and he meets Nicole. And once again, you can't hear what people are really saying under the roar of the Flanger Jam experience. Uh, But Mike demands Nicole leave the club with him and go on a walk. And they abandon poor Alan. They just like they leave a note for him that says, you've got two extra drinks on me, lucky lad. Uh, and where do they go? They sneak into a hotel pool and go for a swim. And meanwhile, we see the Montserrat's at home sitting at their kitchen table, enjoying the feeling
1: of water on their skin while Mike does the swimming. Which is one of just so many weird scenes of this old couple in their apartment experiencing sensations uh, of uh, young people elsewhere in the city. Uh, there's a lot of this and it's always it's always so it is it, they're very weird scenes. They're not like outrageous level weird, but they're just they're so distinctive and interesting. Like I can't think of 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 any other um uh, you know fictional narratives that have uh, have gone into something like
0: this. I agree. It, it is unusual. And then we see Marcus and Estelle have a conversation where they discuss how their theories are vindicated now. And Marcus's idea Seems to be, okay, time to take, because we've proven it works, we can take this legitimate. He's like, we can create a kind of service for elderly people where they will use this hypnosis procedure openly on young people and then live vicariously through them. Maybe send the young people on a cruise or something and they get to experience it at a remote distance through them, even when maybe their bodies are are uh, too frail to have the
1: experience for themselves. Yeah, essentially doppling into young bodies and experiencing uh, doppel-based vacations, which, you know, this makes sense. This seems like this could be a real benefit to uh, society.
0: Yeah. So Marcus wants to go public with his discovery. Now, I sense a little bit of a problem, which is that you you tested this out without consent on an unwilling. Well, I I guess he was willing. He was open for something. He just didn't know what it was going to be. So I guess it's ambiguous whether that counts as consent or not. If a guy just says, like, yeah, do whatever to me, I don't care.
1: Yeah. And I think this is this is a problem that Estelle is picking up on. Estelle yeah. is, is, is probably picking up on this, and also she's picking up on Marcus's checkered history. Uh, she has clippings. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the scene or it's a later scene where yeah, she whips the these newspaper. out. Yeah. yeah, where he has gotten into a lot, of, a lot of trouble in the past, something involving his hypnotism. So there's this feeling like even if e- this may be a great idea, uh, you know, let's use this to benefit society, but Marcus is not in a position to be the person who does this, and certainly not the person who benefits from introducing this to the world, because his name has already been, um, you know, dragged through the gutter um, to some extent. And to your point, uh, their first successful test was done without any kind of uh, legal structure surrounding it. That's right. Uh,
0: and then Estelle also has another objection. She says, like, no, let's live a little bit first. Before you go public with this, if you're going to do that, let's use the boy for our own pleasure for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I believe she, she points out, like, we, we suffered. We've heard it. Yeah. yeah. We suffered because, uh, in, in part, because of what you went through and uh, because of your career trajectory. So let's... We're owed this. Yeah, we need to do this. We need to experience some pleasure through this this young dope that we have hypnotized. Uh, and then we'll see. Then we'll see what we can do for society. So the next day, we go visit Mike at work. Where does Mike work? Well, Mike works at the Glory Hole. Uh, <laughs> this is a—we um, we see the exterior of this building. Um, it is called the Glory Hole. Um, it, on closer examination, it appears to be an antique store. And I, this raised a number of questions for me. So I did a little bit of research. And uh, as it turns out, this was an actual antique store in London. Uh, you, can, you can look at various uh, movie location websites, have information about this. Though so, um, you know, I, I recommend, you know, using search terminology uh, appropriately while trying to find this for yourself. Yeah. Uh, but it, it raised the question, well, why did they call an antique store the glory hole? Well, according to Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable... Um a glory hole is quote, a small room cupboard, et etc, where all sorts of odds and ends and junk are dumped. So there you have it, okay,
0: so he's like an antiques dealer, which is strange it It is a strange choice for a job for this character because. The whole thing is it seems to be that he's like a young go 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 uh a guy who's just like terminally bored with life and and wants new experiences and is really uh has no time at all for old people.
1: Yeah, and this is not like a really nice antique store. I mean it's a real hole in the wall. And um um sorry, couldn't resist. And um <laughs> so it's it's not a really nice place that where he works. Uh and he seems very bored out of his mind working there. Uh, And yeah, it is like he's surrounded by old things. Uh, This guy's probably just completely losing it here.
0: So we see him working. uh, I think there's a scene of no consequence at all from what I remember where a guy comes in asking to use a telephone (laughs) and then Mike hands him like an antique telephone that's not plugged into the wall.
1: Yeah, I thought it was going to work up to some sort of um, uh, a punchline and it doesn't really. (laughs) It's just kind of this weird, uh, weird little almost humorous segment that goes nowhere. Just seeing Mike being rude to someone else. Yeah.
0: Anyway, later that night, Mike is getting ready to go out on a date with Nicole. uh, And he's like, he comes to talk to her and he's sitting in her living room reading a magazine while she's getting ready. She's getting dressed. And then suddenly the Montserrat's tune into his brain once more and take control. They make him leave Nicole's apartment. He goes out on the street down the lane uh oh and there's a moment earlier in the day where we saw estelle looking through a shop window where she was admiring uh at first i thought she was admiring a tiger skin but maybe Mm -hmm. she was admiring a fur coat in the window
1: yeah there's like a tiger skin beside it or behind it but yeah at first i was like wow she really wants a tiger skin that looks like it's gonna be really easy to trace Uh, yeah but no it's the it's the coat uh, and it appears Estelle
0: wants to have Mike crowbar the door on the shop and steal the fur coat for her. So he does. Mike, you know, he, he ratchets the door open and then an alarm goes off. And then, uh oh, here comes a Bobby. There's a police officer who, like, comes to check things out. And There's peril while Mike is sneaking around trying to avoid being caught. And during this scene, I thought I picked up on, and this is Vindicated later, that Marcus looks worried, but Estelle seems kind of excited by the danger. And uh, when Mike gets away, he stashes the fur coat in a trash can where they say Estelle can go pick it up later. Uh, But yeah, they have this experience. They make they make him do a robbery and almost get caught. And then afterwards, Estelle and Marcus are sitting at the table and they have this conversation. Uh, She's like, didn't you feel the thrill? And Marcus denies it at first. He's like, no, no, that was terrible. We shouldn't do that again. But Estelle says, you did enjoy it. The thrill, you know, the risk, the exhilaration. You can tell she is hooked.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he was he really didn't want to do this. But but also he didn't stop her from doing he's not. We're absolutely not using this man. We're controlling body and soul. Uh, We're not going to use him to do crimes at all. He was more like, okay, maybe one crime, but just the one crime, Estelle, no additional crimes. And then she's like, but crimes are fun. And he's like, okay, yeah, you got me. Yeah. Uh, Oh, another thing
0: that is meaningful in this scene, we see Mike during the robbery cut his hand on something. And then afterwards, we see Marcus and Estelle both have cuts on their own hands in the same place. So whatever injuries happen to Mike are psychically transmitted to uh, the Montserrat's as well. Now, later, Mike goes back to apologize to Nicole. He, he, he confesses that he doesn't quite understand what is happening to him and he is afraid. And we get as the audience, that this is unusual for him. Mike is not the type of person to usually uh, say he's sorry or admit he's afraid. Now, next thing that happens, Estelle comes to Marcus one day and she's like, I was outside and I just saw a policeman stop a man on a motorbike for speeding. (laughs) Marcus, did you ever experience it? Speed?
1: Real speed? (laughs) I like where this is going. Though it does raise the question, like, couldn't they just ride the train? Is the train not fast enough? I I feel like the train's plenty fast, but. Uh, The train feels too safe. The train's on the track. They want dangerous speed. That's right.
0: So Mike and Nicole are, uh, they're having lunch, and Mike convinces Nicole to come out to the country with him. But how are they going to get there? Why? We're going to steal our friend Alan's motorcycle without asking him. Uh, so Alan's, like, working at the mechanic shop, and they just go up outside, get on his motorbike, and drive away. And
1: Alan's like,
0: what, what happened?
1: Yeah, they're, they're, it gets rather reckless. Like, they're basically pulling yeah. a psychomania here if we, without all the, like, overt harassing of people.
0: Yeah, not the kicking over of uh, pyramids of cans at the grocery store like in Psychomania, but they are doing Psychomania-style speed demon stunts. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Nicole is not into this. She's on the seat behind him yelling, like, slow down, but Mike is, he won't slow down. He's just going faster and faster, and we see the Montserrat's in their house. They're
1: getting their kicks indeed while the speed is going on. I wish, uh, my one wish for these scenes is I wish we would have had that effect, you know, where you like are are blowing air on a person's face and getting the ripples. Uh (laughs) That would have been great with the Montserrat's in their, um, just in their living room. They're like, yes, the speed. (laughs) That would be really good. It would make
0: sense because they get the cuts. Surely they would get the ripples too. Yeah, why not? Also, I just want to note in this scene. So both Mike and Nicole are on the motorcycle. She's like holding onto the back of him, riding behind. Mike has goggles and Nicole does not.
1: <laughs> well, they did steal it. I don't know how, if, if Alan was, you know, had, had an extra pair of goggles on hand. I guess so. I mean, I was thinking, Mike, that is not very chivalrous
0: of you. But I guess on the other hand, he's the one driving. So maybe he needs to see more. I don't know. Right. And he's not,
1: even without the mind control, he's not particularly thoughtful. So. Right.
0: Uh, so they return the motorbike after their speed
1: demon stunts. And for I don't
0: remember why this starts happening, but Mike just starts punching Allen.
1: Yeah, they get into um, a fight over, I mean, I guess over it's over the motorcycle. Like, you took yeah. my motorcycle, you didn't ask for it, and then this quickly escalates. And, I mean, part of the reason it escalates is because clearly the, the people controlling Mike are excited by all manner of sensations, including a knockout brawl in a garage. So, yeah, Mike starts beating Alan up and then also beating
0: his boss, Ron, up. Uh, He Mm -hmm. hits Ron with a pipe. At one point, he's like wrestling with Alan on the floor of this mechanic shop, and they are fighting under a descending auto lift. I was like, oh, God, that that Mm -hmm. is gross. Um, But they managed to get out from under it before it. You know, nobody gets crushed. They do get a bunch of motor oil spilled on them. And he, uh, Mike, beats up Alan until he's basically unconscious. He's like bloody. He hits his boss with a pipe. And uh, then he's like, okay, I'm done with that. And he leaves. Now, this leads to a clear conflict between Estelle and Marcus. Estelle has a taste for power now. She likes the violence. She likes the mayhem. And Marcus is like we can't do this. We've got to stop and she rebukes Marcus for trying to stop her. So Marcus says we I I can't let you do this anymore. I'm going to set the boy free. I'm going to bring him back here and I'm going to deprocess him with my equipment. Estelle says I will not allow it. You will never deprocess him and she injures Marcus somehow like I think she breaks his leg or something, and then she goes into the room with white walls and smashes his equipment. So now it cannot be undone. Mm, The link is permanent now. Marcus is crawling on the floor to her feet. Uh, He says, I'll stop you. And she says, you can never stop me. And she whacks him on the head and knocks him out. So I mentioned earlier that Estelle takes a really surprising direction. I would not have predicted this is how the movie would go from the first time we meet them.
1: Right. I mean, especially since the posters are really selling the Karloff angle. Uh, you know, you've seen Karloff in so many roles where he is I mean, not he's not always the villain, but he is he 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 has a legacy of playing a very effective villain. And so you think that's what he is going to to be here. But no, now it's clear that Estelle is the real risk. She is the one that is going to just burn this psychic uh, link into the ground. You know, she's gonna you know, what she wants to feel everything through Mike for as long as she can, and uh, it doesn't matter who's trying to stand in her
4: way. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission
5: There's joy in every journey.
0: So from here, it just gets worse and worse. What's the next thing? I mean, they've already had him stealing his friend's motorcycle, doing death-defying psychomania stunts, and then beating his friend up for no reason. They got to go to
1: murder, right? That's right. I mean, she's driving this brain like she stole it, and she did steal it. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just the next, uh, next, uh, pl- ne- next uh, destination. On the list, for sure. Uh,
0: so they have Mike go, well, not they. I think it's just Estelle in control now. She has Mike go visit an old girlfriend named Audrey. Uh, and Mike goes to her apartment. He explains, this is Susan George, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so not
1: again, not much of a role here. Yeah.
0: Uh, he goes to her apartment. He explains his predicament. Uh, he, he says, I'm doing things without understanding why. I, I need help. But while he's there, Estelle... Turns on the turns on Mike radio and starts controlling him, and uh, she uh, she takes control and makes him murder Audrey with a pair of scissors. So Mike has now mm-hmm. done murder. Yeah, so we're in a really dark trajectory at this point. Yeah, Mar- Marcus again rebukes her. Karloff is like immobilized in the corner. I think he might be tied up or something. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, you know, you can't do this. You must stop. But uh, it seems that Estelle somehow now has more power over Mike than Marcus does. Like they, you would think maybe they would both control him equally and he would be kind of conflicted. But it seems that when Estelle wants to make Mike do crime, it, she can just make him do it despite Marcus resisting. And so I wonder how that is supposed to work. Are we supposed to understand that Estelle is just stronger psychically than Marcus is? That's how she explains it. She says my, my will is stronger than yours, or you could understand it as maybe Marcus, Wishes he maybe thinks that he should resist her, but can't bring himself to do it. Can't really like stop her. Maybe he just wants her to be able to do what she does, even though he knows he shouldn't want that. Or maybe there's something else going on. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I do like how, since we don't have all the answers and, uh, concerning this exact psychic arrangement, uh, we, do, it, we, we are led to interpret it in various ways. And uh, it, it, is, it is a fun exercise, at least you know, for viewers like us, to try and figure out exactly how it works.
0: But Estelle needs more blood. One murder is not enough. So she next makes Mike uh, go to the rock club and start flirting with the singer of the rock band. They hit it off and she leaves with him. They go for a walk somewhere and they walk. They like take a cab to an alleyway, walk into the alleyway and then. Uh, Mike starts saying, sing for us, sing for us now. And she's like, what? I don't have my band here. I can't I can't sing. And he's like, you must sing for us right now. And then he moves at her menacingly and murders her. And again, Marcus and Estelle try to fight. Marcus says, stay away from her. Don't do it. But Estelle
1: is saying, kill her now. Yeah. So now that's two murders uh, that uh, that Mike has committed on on behalf of Estelle. And, uh, and Estelle's pretty much in the clear here. Like, how could he ever be connected to them in a meaningful way, in a way that would put them in legal jeopardy?
0: That's right. So the next day, Nicole and Alan start to piece things together. They look at a newspaper together that says, Pop Star Murdered. And they had been at the club the night before. They saw Mike leaving with this with this woman. And they're like, oh, now she's dead. They They know what's going on. So they say they're they're gonna ha- go have to confront uh, Mike at work. Uh, meanwhile, we see the the Montserrat's. For some reason, Estelle seems to be drinking heavily now. I didn't know quite what to make of that, especially since she doesn't even have to do it herself. Can't she just get Mike to do it to have the experience?
1: Yeah, they seemed rather opposed to alcohol earlier, but uh, yeah. So so I'm not sure how this actually fits in.
0: Another development, uh, I think the cab driver who drove uh, Mike and the uh, and his murder victim the night before, he recognizes the woman from the newspaper. Uh, he's like, oh, I, I know them. So he alerts the police and the, the police are, are now on the case. Uh, amidst all this, Mike is still going to work at the antique shop. <laughs> <laughs> and Nicole and Alan go and confront him there. Uh, He has he first claims he has no memory of the murders. I'm not sure if he actually has no memory, but he's protesting that he doesn't remember them. Maybe his memories are vague, but Alan and and Nicole have put it all together. They know Mike did the killings. They confront him. And then during the confrontation, Estelle tunes in and takes control and makes Mike attack Alan with the letter opener. But the police are arriving. So before he can finish Alan off, uh, Mike runs off. He jumps in a car and speeds away. The police are in pursuit along with Alan and Nicole. And uh, Marcus and Estelle, during this chase scene, the, the final the final showdown is essentially like the police are chasing Mike in physical space, but Marcus and Estelle are fighting for control of Mike in the psychic space. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I think Marcus is able to take control back and makes Mike wreck the car.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we get this horrifying wreck, uh, in which, uh, like I believe the, the vehicle is turned upside down. There's gasoline leaking, leaking all over the place. And then it erupts in a ball of fire. Right as the police are arriving on the scene, right as Alan and Nicole are arriving. And also that that wonderfully stereotypical uh, police inspector <laughs> looks yeah. like yeah, every yeah. police inspector in every film like this. He just kind of like strolls up. He's seen it. all. He's like, what do we got here? Psychic uh, controlled, mind control thing burning up in a car. Yeah, I've seen it before.
0: He does the thing that the police inspector does in all these movies, which is like make he like physically turns the bodies of Mike's friends around so they're mm-hmm. not looking at the
1: rack. Yeah, like stop, stop looking at that. You don't want to look at that. Come on. we got <laughs> paperwork to fill out. Nothing to see here, folks. So, big ball of fire erupts, burning Mike up. Mike is dead at this point. Uh, but then we get uh, we cut back to the Montserrats, and it's pretty horrifying.
0: That's right, in their apartment remember the cut from the robbery, they are now both charred. They're just charred corpses in their apartment.
1: Yeah. So a fiery ending here, I think, hits pretty hard. Um, And ultimately, man, what a weird film Uh, for so many reasons. But one of them that I think stands out once you get to the end of the the whole narrative is that our antagonists are barely encountered by the other characters in the film and are, for all intents and purposes, unknown to them. Uh, Like, you might have expected... These threads to come back together and cross, like somehow Mike returns to Marcus and Estelle and there's some sort of a showdown there or or that Alan and Nicole are able to put it together truly somehow, you know, and figure out what the psychic connection is. But that doesn't happen either.
0: No, that's a good point. Like there's there's going to be no retrospective resolution for the rest of the characters. It's just like no Mm -hmm. one will ever know that the
1: Montserrat's did this. Right. Right. Right, yeah. I mean, someone's just going to find a couple of burned bodies. There might be some ideas that it was spontaneous human combustion or something. They're yeah. going to find some smashed equipment, you know, in the next room, and probably investigators are not going to make anything out of that, uh, you know, unless you got a sequel in mind. But otherwise, yeah. not. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a very very odd um, plot structure for this film. What do you make of the thing where? So they're having
0: that conversation early on where Estelle and uh, Marcus are like, oh, these young people, they're just out looking for their kicks. They're out, you know, wandering the streets on pills, looking for experiences. But ultimately, it is both of them, but especially Estelle, who are the really depraved uh, pleasure seekers. You know, they're looking Mm -hmm. for these experiences, no matter who's harmed by it. uh, They they must feel something new. Uh, And it seems maybe implied that it is even more so the case because they're old and their bodies have become feeble that they're like, this somehow puts them in an even more extreme pleasure seeking
1: uh, mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the direction they're going in. Like ultimately, I guess, kind of pointing the finger at the old people and saying, uh, well, you know, you, you, you judge us, but what would you do if you had psychic control of our bodies? Mm. Um, uh, you know, with with no way to connect you to the crimes you commit through our bodies, uh, which I guess is kind of a weighted question, because it's like it's ultimately that sort of absolute power corrupts absolutely scenario where uh, it it ultimately doesn't matter if you're a, an old person, a young person, middle aged person, et cetera. But if you have complete control over this other individual psychically and there's no way that they can be really connected to you again in a meaningful way, in a way where like legal um, um, uh, powers could uh, could could rail against you, then, yeah, it would be this huge temptation for a lot of people. Um, but uh, but but I guess maybe it's kind of like a, a leveling of the the moral high ground here. It's like, well, you you really don't have room to judge the youth culture, because, again, if you had mad psychic <laughs> technology, uh, where would that leave you?
0: It is interesting that, you know, I think there are certain moral themes that are commonly attached to certain speculative elements in science fiction and fantasy movies. And weirdly, I think despite the fact that this is a mind control movie, usually mind control elements are linked to themes having to do with like free will and uh, and things like that. I don't think the movie deals with that quite as much. It's more like the movies that are about invisibility where the common moral Mm -hmm. themes are, what would you do if, if like, you know, you could do anything you wanted and get away with it? What would you do if there were no consequences and you could never be uh, traced back to your crimes?
1: Yeah. And I think in many ways it reads like, like if you were to sort of like strip this down to its basic structure, this is a story about an elderly couple who end up, um, acquiring a a pretty severe drug addiction uh, late in life, you know, like you could compare their use of mind control here to use of some sort of a powerful opiate that just turns out to just be Mm -hmm. way, way too strong for the individuals involved to handle.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I think there is some interesting thematic complexity, but I think a lot of the more interesting stuff is really subtext. It's not really it's not really in the script or on the screen. It's kind of like if you if you think about it.
1: Yeah, I agree. It makes it a very interesting film to contemplate, um, though perhaps not as compelling just as a thriller uh, or a horror film or anything like that as it could have been. You know, like you can imagine ways in which this basic plot could be tightened up or or kind of like pushed in other directions. Like this would have been a really cool concept for a Jallo film, you know, like a a film that is just going to really be mostly delivered on the strength of its grisly murders and, you know, its score and so forth and its style. Uh, But the, you know, it's kind of an interesting structure that could help set something like that apart from a lot of the, the sameness that you encounter in that kind of genre. Yeah, I agree. All right. So there you have it. 1967's The Sorcerers. Uh, we'd love to hear from you out there if you happen to watch this one as well and you have thoughts about any of the the themes, performances, and so forth involved here or uh, any of the other movies we mentioned in the course of this episode such as Finder General, write in. We would love to hear from you. A uh, reminder that we're primarily a science podcast here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But on Fridays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, we set aside most serious concerns to talk about a weird film here on Weird House Cinema. And if you would like to go back through the archives and see what other films we've talked about, well... Um, you can go to letterboxd.com. That's dot com. You will find us on there. Our username is Weird House, and there is a list there of all the movies we've covered over the years, and you can start you can start going through them see which ones interest you. Huge thanks to our
0: excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you.